You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I have been super excited about this episode for the last couple of weeks because my guest today is an expert on demography. And you're probably going to say, what the heck does that have to do with me as an employer? Well, if you have been having trouble hiring workers or finding workers and have felt the labor shortage that's been going on even prior to the pandemic, but especially since the pandemic... My guest today is going to help explain why, and his name is Bradley Sherman. He's a renowned demographer, a management consultant, CEO of a company called The Super Age, and author of The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. And his expertise on demographic change and how it disrupts social, cultural, political, and economic norms across the United States and worldwide has made him into one of the nation's most sought-after speakers on changes occurring not just here in the United States but across the globe. However, today I asked him to focus on the job market in the United States and what's been happening. So without further ado, here's Bradley Sherman. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Brad Sherman, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. It is an honor to have you. I have watched many of the podcasts that you've been on and I find this topic fascinating for for our listeners i was wondering if you could talk about what is demographics demographics are the study of us um they are the number of people born the number of people that die each year their labor force participation rates and everything in between demographics are numbers that count people And with those numbers, we're able to make some observations and assumptions on the way the world currently is, uh, but also the way the world may be in the next 10, 20, 30, or 40 years. Okay, so I know you kind of look at this on a global perspective, but a lot of our listeners are here in the United States, business leaders, uh, HR people, and so we've been struggling and people have been struggling over the last four to five years. It was getting tight pre-pandemic, but then it got really tight at the end of the pandemic as businesses were starting to open up with being able to find workers. So we've had wage inflation and we've had strikes going on now and, and all that sort of stuff. And I was wondering if you could explain for the listeners, why is it that people are having such a hard time finding workers? I'll give you two numbers. Okay. 76 and 69. There were 76 million boomers at their peak. There are only 69 million Gen X at their, or Gen Z rather, at their peak. That's a 7 million person differential. During the COVID years, we saw an excess number of people leave the workforce that we did not anticipate. Typically older workers Uh, typically people approaching at or just after that traditional retirement age of 65. 
an extra 3 million people left that were not expected to leave. Well, guess what? If you're looking for workers, there were none around because there simply weren't enough people and certainly people with the right level of expertise to step in and take these jobs. As a result, all of these issues that emerged during the COVID years, things like quiet quitting, the great resignation, all of these terms that entered our lexicon really are a direct result from this demographic shift, the fact that Gen Z is a small generation. And this doesn't go away anytime soon. So if people think this is just a blip on their radar, it's just something they have to deal with until unemployment creeps up, well, I've got news for you. Our birth rates decline every year. Gen Alpha, which follows Gen Z, is even smaller than Gen Z is. So for the foreseeable period, at least another 10 years, if not an entire generation or 20 years, we're going to be in a very tight labor market. And I've heard you talk about um, the replacement value or the replacement number that it takes to just replace people exiting, right? Mm-hmm. What? Where are we with Gen Z versus, say, baby boom? I, I want to say you said one time 2.1 per... Uh, yeah, so, so 2.1 is the magic number. 2.1 is the average number of babies that a woman needs to have in order to maintain our population, maintain a stable population. Anything above that, we have population increase. Anything below that, we eventually have population decrease. We are about 1.7 right now. Which is pretty low. Which is low. It's certainly not the lowest in the world. In fact, uh, Korea, South Korea, is at 0.78. Wow. Yeah. Wow is right. Now, birth rates are not delivered evenly across the United States. That's a national average. And there are some states that are making their numbers in terms of maintaining birth rate to maintain the size of their population. The one state that that outshines them all is South Dakota. South Dakota has a 2.1 birth rate. The places where you'll find the lowest birth rates uh, tend to be in the states that have the quote-unquote highest levels of social protection. Those states in the Northeast, those states on the West Coast. The states that fall kind of in between uh, are the Southern states. That, that maintain higher than average birth rates. Why is that? Not necessarily the Southern, but like the states with the higher levels of social protection. Why would that be? People just don't want to have kids. Well, there's less of a, uh, there's less of a reason to have children. So when you think about the historic models of why we had children, it wasn't because we just felt like it. It wasn't because we just said, oh, wow, it'd be great to have two kids and a dog and a nice house. That wasn't the equation for most of human history. Most of human history was about pure survival. So families had as many children as possible for multiple reasons. Reason number one, there was a high death rate among children prior to the 1900s. In fact, For most of human history, one out of two children died before the age of 15 or 18, adulthood, as it was defined. Mm -hmm. Today, there's a survival rate north of 90% for children. So the chances of a kid dying have really gone down. 
The second thing is, is that children can no longer be leveraged or used as labor in most parts of the United States. Um, there are protections in place to keep kids out of the mines, out of the fields, out of the factories until at least the age of 14. Uh, states like um, Iowa and Arkansas now allow children to start working at the age of 14, albeit at a limited capacity. But for the most part, uh, children cannot really enter the formal labor market until they're 16 years old. And that's where you hear that idea of the working age population being 16 to 64 because it's largely codified in our system. So when you take away that ability for a child to work and produce money and resources for a family, children then just become a financial burden. Um, and I use that term maybe hyperbolically to say a burden. No, that's true. I've got but three. So. But, <laughs> but they're, not, they're not producing the way they used to. My grandfather um, in 1929 went into the mines at the age of 14, mm-hmm. and he was, he was the first child, and he went into the mines to help support his family. That was his responsibility. If he had been born, you know, just 10 or 20 years ago, he would have likely been in the mines at six. Right. Okay. So, and he was one of eight kids. So society adapts accordingly. In the more urban areas of the country where I say high degree of uh, social protection, Um, They also have higher degrees of education on the whole and certainly higher levels of educational attainment among women and women that achieve high levels of education either delay having children until, you know, around middle life approaching their 40s or even 50s in some cases. In fact, the fastest growing group of moms worldwide are women in their 40s, if you can believe that. Hmm. Um, But more interestingly is that the the patriarchal hierarchy of a family where the man serves as the primary bread earner, breadwinner has all but evaporated in these areas. So where there might be that argument nationwide that women earn less than men nationwide, I think it's 70 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar in these urban areas, places like Washington, New York, Boston, Chicago, LA, San Francisco, women are closer to men, if not at what men are making now in terms of wage parity. So all of a sudden, women have great levels of independence. The third and last piece is that outside of education, outside of this shift in the overall economics, social economics of family, um, we've gotten really good at birth control, both education and also delivery of birth control methods. So people have family planning resources at their disposal that they didn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago. And that really, really impacts the birth rate overall. Let me, let me ask you a couple add-on questions to this. Um, Does the decline of the quote nuclear family have anything to do with it? And I'm not talking on a political level on this. I'm talking about just numerically. If you have a 50% divorce rate or whatever it is these days, there's less people staying together, therefore less mating going on, so to speak. Uh, I don't think I'd point it directly at that, although it 
it it it is a natural place to go. The area that I would point to is more of the rejection of marriage altogether is is one of those things. People leaving living in single households, that's a growing trend or has right. been a growing trend for some time. People rejecting the concept of marriage. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not partnering. It doesn't mean they're not having children. It just means that marriage is not their focus. Uh, the nuclear family was never really a great idea. Um, okay. It went contrary to human history. Across the millennia, humans lived essentially in packs and families lived together. So up until you know the 1940s, the pre-war period, before the nuclear family really emerged, you lived in multi-generational housing. Almost everyone mm-hmm. did. You lived with your grandparents, your parents, maybe your own children, all within the same house. And if you weren't in the same house together, you were on the same street together or the same neighborhood. That all started to fray uh, in the middle 20th century. And perhaps that's what has been one of the factors that's led us to the decline in uh, childbirth. That might be one of those factors. But since about 1971, we've actually seen more people moving into multi-generational housing um, across the country. In fact, it's about one out of five people now live in some form of multi-generational housing, meaning they're living with parents, grandparents, kids, grandkids, all under the same roof. Part of what's pushed us to that isn't just demographics, it's economics, um, right. I was going to wonder, I was wondering know, about the affordability of housing. Yeah. So, so, you know, think, talk about the UAW. The UAW is, is, is heading to strike today, most likely. Um, wages have remained relatively static. There's been mm-hmm. weak growth overall uh, since the 1960s. Uh, obviously, there have been some up periods and down periods, but if you look at the long term trend, it's relatively flat. Meanwhile, if you look at any other trend line, the cost of education, the cost of housing, the cost of healthcare, the cost of caregiving, the cost of long-term care, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Those have all gone through the roof. So we as people are having to do more with less. And that is almost pushing families back into this cohabitation model because multi-generational living not only reduces the burden of housing costs substantially, but it also reduces the cost of all of these other associated items, with the exception of perhaps education, because we share in the care burden, we share in the caregiving burden, because we can take care of mom and dad if they're living in the same home with us. Conversely, mom and dad might be able to help take care of our kids or our grandkids, because that's the way society used to function. That's the way households really were for the vast majority of human history. The 20th century is a real blip on the radar of, of, of humanity. Interesting. So let me add another component that I've started hearing about, and, and we started out by talking about the 2.1 birth rate. Um, the Gen Z workers or the Gen Z generation are having less in part due to their fear of climate change, the fear that the planet's going to blow up in 12 years or whatever. Have you heard anything about that? And then like, what is the birth rate with Gen Z right now? 
Uh, I don't have an accurate number on Gen Z's birth rate because it, I haven't parsed that one out. I look at the aggregate for society. I'd have to dig a bit deeper on, on how they're doing overall. But I, I can tell you that, that the average keeps dropping. So children, people who are women who are in those prime years for child uh, birth are, are not having as many children overall. And Gen Z, of course, would be contributing to that. They'd be pulling those numbers down. Or if there was a reversal, they'd be pushing those numbers up. Right. So if the Gen Z kids are not having as many, then at some point we're going to really dry up in terms of workers, right? Well, there's the rub, is that there's okay. a par- there's a paradox here in this country. And the paradox is... Um, Multifold. Uh, the first one is is that there are essentially three readily available sources of labor, if we want to go after them. The first one, and these are let's call them short term solutions, lowering the eligibility age for employment. So having kids work again. That's mm-hmm. that's that's a solution. It's not one I buy into, but that's a solution. Not politically viable either. The second solution is that we open the doors to immigration. We just let people flood in. Um, That would solve the labor problem seemingly overnight. Find me one politician that would agree to that. That's not going to happen. The third one is that we can extend working lives. And the reality is many of us are living longer and healthier lives than ever before. And we have that productive opportunity readily available to do work. Uh, but there are barriers to employment, including quite a, quite a significant amount of bias uh, I think the market forces will 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 push people back to work or encourage them back to work. Um, I think there is a growing cohort of people that do want to work, um, but that's that's going to take some time to turn around. The country will grow. Um, I don't want to be you know suggesting that the United States is not on a growth trajectory because we are still. But that growth trajectory is largely driven by immigration, the current immigration rates that we have in the U.S. So we're um, expected to grow over the next 20 or 30 years by about another 100 million people. So even though labor will get tighter year on year, we're still going to see people coming in. Uh, We're still going to see growth in this country. And that will level things out a bit. But during this immediate period, it's going to be tight and it's going to be painful until hiring managers and businesses at large uh, understand the value of of older workers in creating an age-diverse work environment. So you mentioned the UAW strike, um, and and this is kind of where the balance of market forces is kind of hitting a crossroads because we're pushing towards EV. Um, We've got, which requires less workers to put electric vehicles together. And that's one of the issues that's the UAW is grappling with right now. At some point, if we've got all these immigrant workers coming in and we start seeing, and this is kind of the other component I wanted to ask you about artificial intelligence and that is increasing productivity across a whole swath of professions. And I, I use the analogy like AI passed the bar exam earlier this year, 
right? I want to say there's a GPT program, OpenAI. And although you were not going to do away with lawyers, but if I'm a, a partner in a law firm who's got a big case that requires a lot of research, I may not need as many associates or paralegals. And if I can reduce it based on productivity of AI, I can cut my associates in half. Sure. Then you don't need as many law professors on the top end, right? You're, you're shrinking that workforce. Um, the actors in Hollywood are on strike, as you know. Mm. At some point, if we're eliminating the need for higher income jobs through technology, and not necessarily wholesale replacement, but through productivity enhancing AI, how do we pay our taxes? How does the government work? It, it doesn't. Uh, AI is going to force us into rethinking a lot of our systems and uh, what the value of human labor actually is. But make no mistake, since about 1760, we've been leveraging machines to do men's jobs mm-hmm. um, at a pretty rapid pace. And we are obviously in the throes of the fourth industrial revolution right now, which is driven by information and, of course, uh, artificial intelligence. You know, if you take a look at an auto plant 100 years ago, it's going to look a lot different in terms of the numbers of people working there. So this is not something new for industry. It's not new for manufacturing. The implementation of technologies to, um, you know, speed up productivity, um, to improve quality in some cases, but also to replace uh, the cost of human labor. I wholeheartedly agree that in order for society to properly function, though, when you have all this proper productivity that's happening and very few people earning from it, Mm -hmm. there creates a massive mismatch in terms of the revenues a government can bring in uh, against the people it needs to serve. Now, on a positive note, because I do like to look at the positive, is that when every every innovation period that's come through, um, there's been a whole host of new jobs that have been created. Um, literally every industrial revolution has created new jobs. They're different jobs than the ones people had, but they're, they're new jobs. Um, you know, no one really thinks about the fact that, you know, there was an entire industry dedicated to, to horse saddle making not that long ago. Right, and, right. and doing horses. We don't even think about those guys. We certainly, you know, we certainly don't cry every night for the lamplighter because electricity turns on the street lamps. We have to keep this in mind during this period of transition, while at the same time being pragmatic about what our taxation policies are. And really cognizant of the reality that this transition is faster than the three others industrial revolutions combined. Yeah. Combined. So will there be jobs made redundant? Yes. Will there be a lot? It's quite possible. What, What will be more valuable in the future is not necessarily brute strength or um, the ability to stand on a line and and work with your hands. What becomes more valuable in the future are inherent human characteristics. Um, Things like curiosity will become really, really important in the near future. Um, 
the question is, can people transition? You know, I'm from Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh is a city that was decimated by the decline of steel. And that's part of the reason why I don't live there is that I came out of high school in the 90s. There there wasn't a lot there. They were mid-transition. You go back to Pittsburgh today, what is it? It's a knowledge town. There's still manufacturing there, still plenty of it. There's still one fully fully operational steel mill, albeit operating at a fraction of the capacity it used to. But the real drivers for that city right now in terms of jobs, technology, healthcare, education. So there is still hope for uh, humanity, but we we do have to be cognizant of these changes and make um, adjustments to our systems in order to ensure that there's you know greater dispersal of wealth and not greater concentration, which is the path we're currently on. Let me ask you a question. Aside from this conversation and um, maybe a couple others, I'm not hearing anybody talk about changing our tax system tax policy to account for what may be coming in the next two to five years with the displacement of workers in higher income categories, which is where a lot of the government gets its funding. Mm -hmm. I hear the government talking about in various state governments and and feds talking about, you know, non-discrimination through AI, not monitoring workers through AI, but that's just scratching the surface. Like yeah, all well and good, but well, the the OECD countries, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, it's based in Paris. The United mm-hmm. States is a member of that, along with I think fourteen other nations, agreed in twenty twenty one to a universal corporate tax, mm-hmm. um, meaning that at least within these countries, every corporation would pay I think at least fifteen percent, um, so they couldn't hide their location place to place. This was a big step forward, but it isn't 15 countries are not the world. Right. Um, There are still plenty of places for, for money to hide. There are still plenty of tax havens that exist worldwide. There are not a lot of serious proposals on the table right now. I think part of the problem with the body politic right now and American politics in general is that we are really, um, distracted by shiny objects on a regular basis. Um, (laughs) And I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. Daily. I don't care if you're a rabid conservative or a liberal. When a shiny object is placed in front of anyone these days, all eyes go to the shiny object. If we really wanted to make change, if we really wanted to understand the fundamental pressures on our current system and we really wanted to be good citizens, we would have these conversations. We would be able to have these debates. The problem is if it, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead on the news. Mm -hmm. Um, If it isn't some outcry over, um, you know, Hunter Biden today or Jared Kushner tomorrow, um, it makes it difficult for the public writ large to really zero in and say, actually, you know what? I'm not concerned with that stuff. I'm concerned about the fact that we have multi-billionaires in this country with not only significant wealth, but also significant control over our resources and the things that run day-to-day life. That would be the more concerning story. But you know what? 
it doesn't break through. It doesn't break through the noise these days. Uh, you know, the former Senator, uh, Senator uh, Kasich, I think, or Representative Kasich from uh, Ohio is often talking about this, this need for a great spiritual awakening in this country. And while that's kind of an opaque idea, we do need to have some kind of leveling off and saying, what, what's really important to us as people? Until we get to that point, we're not going to have these serious conversations. Um, we're just not going to get there because too much is focused on who screams the loudest. Yeah, I've I've got you by a few years in age, but um, it seems to have gotten worse over the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. And in particularly the last 10 years, I want to say 2008, maybe before that. Mm-hmm. I don't see that happening, like having these deep discussions until something brings people to their knees and say, okay, in order to survive, we've got to do it together. Yeah. Uh, Which is unfortunate. No, it is. But, you know, that seems to be a recurring theme in American history that we need these great uh, traumatizing events that force people to work together for us to actually get something done. And whether that be uh, either one of the the world wars, the Great Depression, the Civil War, the Revolution, you know, all of these right. things were kind of seminal moments in America that pulled people together. And then we drift apart and then we pull together again and we drift apart. There's this um, book that came out in 1996 called The Fourth Turning. And it's a really interesting read. Uh, it, it will keep you up at night. Let's just say that because the fourth turning talks about this idea that America is on a 70 to 80 year cycle. And within each of this cycle, there are, there are four turnings within the cycle. And the fourth turning is this period of crisis and calamity. Well, sorry, folks, we are in that period of crisis and calamity now. Now we will not know when this big crisis actually hits until we're actually in it or coming out of it. And then we go through the cycle again. So if you think about the post-war period, uh, post-World War II, think about what a period that was for the country in terms of prosperity, uh, certainly for certain parts of the population, in terms of global standing, there was this great unity, almost almost a stifling unity mm-hmm. at that time. But by the 1960s and 70s, that was fraying, uh, frayed even more during the 1980s and 1990s. We had this slight coming together uh, around 9-11, but then we immediately slipped into this period of rapid deterioration. Right. So we've been through this before. Um, This was the same type of period leading up to the Civil War. So, yeah, it's bumpy. It's ugly. Um, I wish we had the fortitude as a people to say, let's just take a breather. But the rabid fervor of the moment will not allow us to, nor will the 24-hour media cycle or the fact that we are constantly getting pushed information to our phones. On a short-term basis, um, and I know you consult with employers or companies out there in terms of the demography and et cetera, what are you telling your clients? Well, for my clients, the first thing they have to do is understand that the change is here. And Mm -hmm. that has been one of the more surprising things to express to business. 
in large part because we don't think about demographics in our everyday life. We don't think about population change. Um, some people even say, "What what is demographics? I don't I don't quite get the idea." Right. It's a lot like climate change. I mean, climate change is a reality. Uh, look at any of the long term trending. You know that the temperature has gone up worldwide. We know that the 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 temperature of the oceans has gone up worldwide. We see year on year these increased storms, these dramatic storms. But you know what? This summer in D.C., it was nice. Mm -hmm. It was really nice. We had great weather. We didn't have too many bad storms. It was lovely. Everyone forgets about it until the big storm comes. So demographics are kind of like that because demographic change and climate change are sisters. They are both byproducts of industrial revolutions, of the industrial revolution. So they grew up hand in hand. Well, now we're in this period of somewhat calamitous climate change, you know, 10,000 plus people dead in Libya from a, from a storm that knocked down some, um, some uh, water containment facilities, some, some dams, um, hurricane, you know, two, I think Lee is at a two now barreling towards the coast of Nova Scotia, which is, you know, unheard of that storms make it up that far North, certainly at that strength. Uh, droughts, et cetera, all that's happening. We can see it now. We're like kind of panicking. Some people are panicking about it. Well, the same is happening with demographic change. All of a sudden people are up and they're saying, wait, when did this happen? Why, why am I struggling to get labor? Well, they're looking around without any clue because nobody's been talking about it for 25 years. Right. Way. There's plenty of us demogra- demographers that have been doing it. There's plenty of people who are in aging and longevity that have been doing it, but it's here now and they're finally feeling the pinch. They're finally feeling the pinch, but they can't express it because every single HR person, certainly in a leadership position in any company in the United States, grew up in a world where there was readily available labor and they had a pool of possible candidates to choose from. They don't have that anymore. Right. Not at the same, not at the same rate. And that is causing them incredible pain. Add on to that, the turnover rate, especially of younger workers who are like, yeah, we're not dealing with this BS, this hierarchy, this nonsense within your office. We're not dealing with it. It is a constant crisis. It's a daily crisis for HR professionals and hiring managers. Yeah, I don't know what the average is anymore. It was like 3.2 years or something in terms of the average lifespan of an employee at a certain employer. Um, maybe less, maybe more kind of think it may be more or less these days, maybe inching back up. But what I've watched over the last couple of years is a lot of employers out there in order to attract new employees coming in, have ratcheted up their entry level pay. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're starting to creep down a little bit. I think Walmart just came out and said, they're going to ease back on that. But in turn, that's created a lot of compression issues in workplaces. And then in healthcare, which has always had nursing shortages for the last 25 years, I've been doing healthcare, healthcare type of work. Yeah. I heard one state up in the Northeast is like short 14 or 15,000 nurses just in the entire state. Mm-hmm. So then you're, you know, at this point, how are you going to solve that? Are you going to import nurses from other countries, which some have, or okay. is AI going to help out? 
change bed sheets uh, and AI will help to, AI, AI will help to some degree in these areas, you know, and this is where the, the crux is, you know, like there are places that really need it to improve efficiencies because there aren't enough people to go around. Right. You know, the areas that are feeling the biggest pinch of demographic change are, are rural counties uh, across the United States. So nationwide uh, about half the, half the county, three quarters of the counties in about half the states now have deaths outpacing births. Repeat that one more time. Three quarters of the counties and about half the states now have deaths outpacing births. Wow. Meaning okay. more, more people die each year than babies born. Rural counties are at a comparative disadvantage right now and, and have been for a long time in terms of recruiting new people to come in. They are more likely to see people leave than migrate to. Right. So these rural counties are are really in a in a bind. And you know, we we hear about, you know, we heard in the 90s about the assault on Main Street with with Walmart. That was one part of the equation. Um Dollar General has largely filled that void, but now there's one store in every small town. Um, the other challenges that exist uh, are that schools have closed, uh, banks have closed, hospitals have closed at an astonishing rate, simply because there aren't enough people to go around. So where coastal people might think of the rural areas as being you know, maybe a bit backward, maybe not in tr- fully in line with, you know, what's happening in the big cities, the rural areas actually provide the greatest laboratory for understanding what to do with less. And mm-hmm. for me, uh, I think that if the right investments are made in terms of innovation, rather than just trying to serve New York City, if you can serve a small town in Iowa, uh, with, with, with some degree of efficacy, imagine what you could do in a big city. Like imagine how you could scale that, you know, you always trying to figure out how to help people that, that have the least access to resources, uh, get the most out of life. You know, that it kind of explains why, and I'll use the meatpacking, you mentioned South Dakota. Um, there are towns, rural towns where in order to bring in workers to run in the meatpacking plant, a lot of them are coming from other countries. Sure. And so you see, you know, these little pockets of whether they're Somalians or whether they're Hispanic or wherever coming in and they fill up the town because they're, they're needed in those meatpacking plants. And yeah, I've driven cross country like four times this year. So it's just a matter of interesting to watch. And when you stop at a gas station or something and, the uh, yeah, the demographics know, in there and 150 years ago um those tiny towns before they were really even foundational would have been Czechs Slovaks Germans Irish right, right there is something about chain migration that is is a significant part of um the American ethos it's part of really who we are mm-hmm. where groups of people from outside come in and they make their own community and then that community integrates with other parts of the community and really remakes the fabric of the country and that might sound like waxing poetic but 
there is an economic driver for this. You know, these people are filling jobs that Americans may not want or aren't attractive enough to Americans right now. Um, that's always been part of our history. Doesn't well, matter where we're coming from. And you're from Western Pennsylvania, and the state just below you, the coal mines down there, were Irish, then immigrant or Italian immigrants coming yeah. in. So there, there is a history to that. Yeah. So, but it is interesting to see the dichotomy of, and I've done the the the, the cross country trip a number of times myself. It really is interesting going through these towns now and and seeing diversity where you wouldn't mm-hmm. expect diversity before. That's not a story that's told very often here, it, and I and I appreciate you bringing it up because it is. I don't want to say jarring, but it just sometimes catches you off guard to see these these towns that don't look how we expect an American small town in the West to look. Well, I, I stopped in at a gas station, one of those large ones in the middle of Iowa, and I was kind of surprised, although it made sense, that the vast majority of customers in there were Spanish-speaking. Mm. And I was just like, huh, in the middle of Iowa. Yeah, And, you know, it, again, it makes sense because, A, if these towns are shrinking and you have a large plant built and you can't attract workers in there, you need to get them from somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, it's a lot of people don't recognize that, I guess, because they don't do the trip long enough. Um, let me come back to your what you're telling companies these days, because that's where I see a lot of the the griping going on for lack of a better term, like we just can't find workers. Nobody wants to work anymore. Yeah. Well, that's, that's just fundamentally false. Uh, everybody wants to work. Uh, it's, it's really hard to find people who don't want to do anything all day long. Work is a central part of, of, of what it means to be us and to have purpose, whether you love your job or not. The question is, for business is are you able to meet your employers your employees rather where they are and are you able to build systems in place within your company that really tap into this generational diversity that we have right now meeting people from the age of 16 to 65 75 85 if they happen to be in your ecosystem and the truth is you can, and there are a number of different strategies businesses can utilize to get there. The first is that they have to tackle their own bias head on in the recruitment process. You know, whether it's utilizing sorting mechanisms, computerized sorting mechanisms, software sorting mechanisms that knock out candidates based on experience, you're leaving a whole whole slew of candidates behind that are desperately looking for work. You know, mm-hmm. men and women, uh, at or near or just past retirement age, always struggle to find work because they're quote unquote too experienced. Well, what does that even right. mean? What does that even mean? Well, part of it is that the sorting software is sorting them out and you're not even getting to see them. So I would take a look at that first as an HR person. The second piece is when somebody comes to see you for a job, don't don't even think that they're overqualified for a position. That's a ridiculous thing to say. If that person is looking for a job, they're qualified for the job. They're either underqualified or they're qualified. There's no such thing mm-hmm. as, as overqualified. Now, as it relates to building better practices within an enterprise, this is where businesses really need to pay attention to the reality that we have five generations in the workplace today. 
generations generation z the youngest the generation uh the silent generation the oldest these five generations have unique talents unique skills uh they all come with with a, a special uh They've lived through special events throughout their lifetime that have made them who they are. You know, I'm a late Gen X. Uh, I sit right on the cusp of technology. You know, I know how to use a typewriter. I know how to use a computer. And I can go between them with relative ease. That Those little pieces make up who we are. Don't look at them as weaknesses. These as weaknesses. Look at these as strengths. Because people grow up and have different lived experiences, they can apply this to their job. So businesses have this really amazing opportunity to take the learned experience, the life experience of these individuals across generations and get them together to solve problems. Businesses that do this really participate in this level of, 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 of creating diverse and strong working environments, see their productivity soar, see their innovation soar. So this is something that's good to do. Businesses have to make investments, though, in communications. They have to make investments in training because we might all use the same communication tools, but we have only half a dozen of them at our disposal today, which is the one that we can always work on together. Is it Slack? Is it an email? Is it a phone call? Is it a handwritten letter? Is it text? There has to be some leveling of of the field here. But businesses also have to consider benefits. You know, it's not just about money. Obviously, everybody wants to get paid well in their job, but people also want to know that their employer has their back to some degree. So flexibility is one of those things that certainly coming out of the pandemic, everybody wants to some degree. Every employer has the ability to offer some degree of flexibility in their work. Literally every job can have some degree of flexibility in its work. Now, it might not be working at, from home every Friday, like many employers are giving in terms of white collar jobs, but it might be compressed schedules. It might be sharing your job with somebody else. Uh, Chick-fil-A in South Florida has a, a pod schedule where people work as a pod for you know eight to 10 hour shifts. And then they get a, a weekend off every, every three weeks. Like mm-hmm. these are the types of things that you can, can attempt within a workplace. You know, anything can, can, can really be done if you put your mind to it. We also have to be cognizant of the fact that people are living differently than they did just 10, 20 years ago. So when dealing with one person in the office, you're, you're dealing with one person in one reality. It isn't everyone living in, you know, two-parent home with two kids and a dog and a cat. Right, right. The, the life realities have shifted too. There are people taking care of their, their parents. There, there, are, there are Gen Zs taking care of their grandparents or their great-grandparents, something that was unheard of not that long ago. So... Being an empathetic employer is a real linchpin in getting the most out of this. Now, people say, okay, we get it. We can make a more effective workplace by doing these things. But what about the bottom line? Like, how is this going to pay off? Well, not only do those productivity gains go up overall, but in this country, because of our demographic shift, there's a lot more older adults around. And these older adults are looking for products and services, um, not necessarily made specifically for them, but but considered of them. And the companies that are able to integrate this thinking into product and service design are doing really well. 
Um, Apple is one of those companies that is doing really well by being inclusive, intentionally inclusive in their design. Um, more and more people year on year have an Apple watch. For example, talk to one person why they have an Apple watch. You'll get one answer. Talk to another person. You'll get another answer. Talk to another person. You'll get another answer because all of this functionality is built in. I'm in middle age now. I'm interested in an Apple Watch now because of its health monitoring technologies. But talk to somebody who might be 10 years younger than me, they might say, well, I just really like it because it's a cool gadget. Talk to um, an older adult, perhaps an older man, they might be interested in it because of the falls prevention. All of these are interesting things that are built into that device. So businesses have just a really and this is what I express to them is that they have a real opportunity here to tap into age diversity, tap into this generational powerhouse that we have readily available at our fingertips, but they have to remove some barriers to get there first. Let me ask you about when we talk about demographic diversity in the workplace, do you encounter a diversity of values? And and I say that you know, we've got the older values of go to work and work hard and and who cares about your problems, right? And then you got the Gen Z, for example, that's all about caring about the problems. And if the work interferes with my problems, then I'm quitting. Do you have issues like that? Or do you see issues like there's that? that? There's definitely some friction there. Uh, but we have, managers in particular have to remember that each person on the team comes with a unique lived experience. So boomers put their head down and do the job. Mm -hmm. Like that's just what they do. That's the product of their generation. They also had a highly competitive labor market for most of their lives. If they didn't put their head down and do the job, somebody else would and right. they'd be shown the door. Generation Z doesn't live in that reality. People are chasing after generation Z to fill jobs. Um, so their reality says, okay, well, if this is the accepted uh, marketplace, this is how I will behave. So there is a little bit of friction there, but when we talk to teams specifically, we try to impart the reality that we're all dealing with our own, you know what, every day. And that while, you know, we should never discount somebody's lived experience or the way they work, we should really focus in on work product at the end of the day and establishing expectations from a manager on what the final product should be. So this applies perhaps more to an office setting, but um, by expressing to your employees clear deliverable dates, for example, um, you take out any of the questions of how they achieve that deliverable you're only talking about the deliverable at the end of the day. So I work in a manner that is very focused. I I work a tight, a really hard, full focused, four hours break, do two more hours break, and then work again in the evening. Like that's how I work. Mm -hmm. There are some people that work late at night, and that's just how they work. They function better like that. I'm a 5 a.m. guy. I'm a 5 a.m. guy every day. Other people can't even start thinking about work until 5 p.m., but if their work product is identical, who cares? Right. If, if, you know, Jane Boomer employee, 
feels the need to be strapped to her desk for eight hours a day, five days a week, and she feels that's the best way to deliver her deliverable, while Bobby, you know, John Gen Z feels like he can do that all from home and does it in the same way, in the same management, who cares? Who really cares? Now, obviously, We're seeing that clash a lot right now. Yeah. We turn to but, work. But, 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 but really, like, ask yourself as a manager, what's the important thing here? Is it the outcome or is it the process? If you're yes. focused on process, you're a bad manager. You only focus on process when the product is bad. I think there's a couple other considerations other than the internal employer issues that um, has been overlooked in this whole return to work debate. And that is that the hollowing out of these big complexes, office mm-hmm. complexes, um, you know, I know Amazon just built a HQ2 somewhere in Arlington, or I think it's, it's Arlington. across the river for me, yeah. Yeah. And so if you've got these millions or hundreds of millions of dollars of empty space there and all the businesses around there, whether it's the hot dog vendor or whatever, you're looking at, you know, basically hollowing out your downtown area. Totally. And I think that's been, I think that it just, I'm guessing that's part of the equation when companies are saying, get back to the office. Yeah. I'm not sure if, if bosses really, really do the math on that about the trickle down effect for the larger community. Uh, I haven't, I haven't spoken with any employers that explicitly say we're doing this to get, you know, Mrs. Lou who runs the cafe downstairs back to work. Like, that's no. not the rationale. Um, they're certainly not trying to pull people back for any civic-minded reasons. Um, you know, the, the the rationale that's been given given thus far seems to be two-part. Uh, I'm a manager, and I should be managing people here. Um, <laughs> that's the first one. Uh, the second one is, um, you know, we have all this office space, so we should just be using it. Now. Right. That's a weird one too. Like, okay, well, maybe we weren't using it correctly before. The reality is, is that we are going back to work. Um, whether or not it will be a five-day week is TBD. Part of what the Super Age does is it provides strategic foresight to businesses on what the future will look like. We look at a lot of data. We we make some assumptions based on emerging tastes, trends, and technologies, and look at historical norms to see what might be happening, and after the first lockdown, we said, okay, the five-day work week is essentially dead. And some people who are in the field said, we'll never return to the office. And I said, well, that's that's BS. We're, we're going back to the office. <laughs> um, but we are in a negotiation period right now, certainly for office workers negotiating between this remote work, which some people got very accustomed to, and full-time in-office work, I think we'll probably land four days a week when all said and done. Four days a week in terms of hours spent at the office. That could be spread across five days. It could be condensed down to three days, TBD. But we're getting to a place where businesses are now insisting that being in person is essential. And you know, to put a super fine point and obviously a giant ironic one in this, one of the first companies to claw workers back to the workplace was Meta, the mm-hmm. company that promised us we could do everything in the metaverse and away from the office place and away from human connection. 
well, if they're calling BS on this, it is really BS, this idea of full remote work. When I take a breath, though, here, there are jobs you don't need to be in the office for. Like, technology allows for that. Um, they might be operational jobs, you know. Obviously, look at at travel, for example. Uh, all the travel agencies, people work from their homes. A lot of the airlines have people that work part-time over Zoom right. or on a as a kind of a de facto call center. Like there are jobs you can do fully remote, but for a lot of jobs, you do need to be in person. And the contrary would be undoing, oh my God, 10,000 years at least of human history, human civilization. And after three years of a pandemic, uh, I just don't see it. Yeah. The one thing I am seeing coming out, this is uh, one of the early demands with the UAW at the big three, is this four-day work week, reducing the hours of work down to 32 per week and, of course, jacking up the pay to not lose any money, which I don't see how that's going to work just from a, you know, you're looking at at minimum a 20% increase. And if you're, and it's not just the UAW. I'm seeing this throughout the labor press. Yeah, I think, start focusing on that. I think if you're arguing productivity tied to which I, I may be mis- misunderstanding the demand, but I thought the the demand was largely tied to their productivity increases. All I'm seeing from the labor side is we need to reduce the work week to 32 hours, four days a week. Yeah. Well, I mean, this, this was a this was a this was a pre, this was a prediction that that we made as of June. The team made as of June of 2020. So, we we just believe it's coming, and we believe that 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 while we might be in this fight right now, and maybe for the next couple months, the dust is really going to start to settle uh, early next year, no later than middle next year, on what. The American work week looks like it's not Henry Ford's work week anymore. It's it's a new one uh, driven largely by technology um, and demographic realities. It will likely settle uh, if and when we enter recession and the likelihood of recession next year, I think, is robust. Are you hearing that as well? I'm not hearing it. I, I, I know it. I mean, the the numbers, the economy's been so strange. You know, Goldman came out with their predictions in late 2021 for 2022 or 20, late 2022 for 2023. And they're screaming, you know, we're going to be in recession. We're going to be in recession this year. And I looked around at my colleagues. And I'm like, I don't see anything that indicates recession this year. Not a single thing. And people who are involved in workforce predictions concurred. That that there was little to no chance the U.S. could enter recession this year because we were finishing up pandemic spending, we had high labor force participation, it continued to grow, unemployment re- remained relatively low, spending really hadn't faltered in any way, people were still kind of moving along, and we didn't see any indication that that was going to soften this year. Obviously, the federal governments, uh, the Federal Reserve, rather, their their upping of the interest rates has helped slow that down, has helped slow inflation, which I think has inadvertently helped people keep spending. But next year is a different reality. 
Um, we've got high interest rates across the board. Uh, we've got commercial spaces that, you know, can't get loans to 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 relevage their debt. Uh, we've got incredible household debt now. Uh, healthcare right. costs have, have started ticking up pretty dramatically again. All of these pressures are going to are going to force a large number of people to really pull back on their spending, really pull back on their spending, and that's when we'll hit recession. The question is, how painful will it be? Um, I don't think it'll be that bad, but but it is likely. Yeah, I'm hearing all kinds of different things. Could be a crash and depression, and I don't see a crash. Negative recession or you know heavy just, recession. I just don't see a crash. I, I I mean anything is possible. There are too many there are too many guardrails on the system, the mechanisms of the system for a real crash to occur. But like anything, you know, there there can be something lurking just beneath the surface. That's entirely possible. Uh, right. If people are carrying too much household debt, will they be able to maintain payments on their loans? Especially if they had an adjustable rate mortgage, that's a that's an unknown. Uh, you know, will the housing? You know, what will we see in the housing sector if a company like Airbnb fully collapses? You know, ten twenty ten thousand twenty thousand units were taken offline in New York last week with the new uh, with the new law restricting Airbnbs. There, I mean. If that company goes under, think about all the individual investors that actually were making money off of properties. Now they're carrying two mortgages without an income or yeah. multiple mortgages without an income. There are some things that are just kind of scary and a little unknown right now. But because there are signals pointing towards recession, shouldn't put people into panic mode. It should put people into preservation mode. You know, what do I need to do right now to really shore up my position within my employer? What should I do right now to make sure that I have a little bit of extra savings put aside if they can do that? Um, and if they can do that, they they probably should. Right. Well, Brad, we've been on for close to an hour. And I, I am so thrilled you could come on. So this is great. Watching you for a while. Let the listeners know where they can reach out to you. I'm going to put links under the audio portion of this as well. The easiest way to get to me is at the superage.com. Um, I'm fairly active on LinkedIn. If you want to find me there at Bradley Sherman, that's spelled S C H U R M A N. But I really appreciate the time today. It's been great. Thank you, sir. It was great meeting you. You too. So that was Bradley Sherman, demographer, management consultant, CEO of The Super Age, and author of The Super Age, Decoding Our Demographic Destiny. And as I always do, I'm going to leave some links. If you're not following Bradley Sherman on LinkedIn, you should. He is a wealth of information. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. And if you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter at Workplace Report. That's at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. I'm just a man living one I'll tell you what I need. Oh, black tree. You have been listening to Labor Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.